The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. In contemporary Indonesia, there is this strong awareness of linguistic diversity, of cultural diversity. And so what people want to highlight now is not national identity in that rigid sense of one nation, one language, but rather an Indonesia that is linguistically diverse, that is ethnically and religiously diverse. This growing confidence in being Indonesian and having these other various identities has meant that there's no longer the sort of negative attitude towards the use of foreign languages like English. People in Indonesia are really embracing their identity on the world stage, embracing other languages, foreign languages, Indonesian, Arabic, and others, without a sense of their own identity being threatened. In this episode, language choices and challenges in Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia is one of the most linguistically diverse places on the planet, with some 700 languages still being spoken. Its unifying tongue and only official language is Indonesian, or Bahasa Indonesia. The national language adopted at the birth of the new republic was at the time spoken by a mere 5% of the population. Yet it was chosen over much more widely spoken languages, such as Javanese and Sundanese. Today, it serves to bind a still massively multilingual landscape, while playing a key role, providing a sense of Indonesian national identity. Yet, as we'll hear, the complexity and hybrid nature of the languages spoken in the archipelago means Indonesian still vies with other tongues, and even with itself, in the choices people make about what kind of language they use. To help us examine how the national language sits in hyper-polyglot Indonesia, with us, Indonesian studies experts, Associate Professor Novi Jenar of the University of Sydney and Dr Michael Ewing of Asia Institute. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. This is a fascinating topic and I think we need to start, Novi, with how Indonesia came to adopt a rather small language in many ways, but a very important language spoken, as I said in the introduction, by only 5% of that population then. How did that all occur? Yes, it's a very interesting history. Indonesian is really a variant of Malay, and Malay has been there all the while. It was a language that was spoken as a lingua franca among different groups, and it was a language of trade. So even though it was spoken by a minority of the population at the time, it was also a language that was already there and also a language that was perceived to be uh, non-hierarchical. And so that was an important consideration when people were thinking about choosing a national language. Non-hierarchical, what do you mean by that? At that time, the largest number of speakers of any particular language was Javanese. So Javanese language has got different speech level, and that means that when people interact with another person, they constantly, constantly have to calculate who they're interacting with, what kind of language they should use when interacting with that person. So social hierarchy is embedded, is worked into the language. Unlike in Malay, of course, Malay also has, you know, ways in which people can express formality 
and it has the informal register as well. But it's not grammatically embedded in the way that Japanese is. So I think, you know, it is being perceived as a more equal language. By register, you mean that's a linguistic term, meaning the level of formality in a The way. level of formality, the level of uh, social positions and a social hierarchy. So the desirability of having a language which was more knockabout, I suppose, and you mentioned trade. So was the Malay language like a complete language? It had literature, etc., or was it more a working day language? So this is an important question. I think when we say that Malay is a language that doesn't have a speech level, it does have the formal variety and also informal variety. So obviously, you know, the formal variety would be used in education and also in government since the Dutch era, actually, since the 19th century. And the informal level, what used to be called the trade Malay or the the bazaar Malay, different informal varieties, were used for day-to-day communication in trade and also at home among different people, different groups. We use the term Creole to describe, for example, what's happened in Papua New Guinea, which is more a pidgin. They have 850 languages just in Papua New Guinea. So the archipelago has another 700 or so, including, I guess, West Papua. Explain to us why the Dutch, when they came, chose this language, which became the lingua franca. What made the Dutch choose Malay as the language they wanted to work with? Actually, it was not just Malay. Malay was chosen by the Dutch as a language of government. But in schooling, actually, there were regional languages as well. If there was a major language in a particular area, such as Javanese, then Javanese would be used as medium of instruction in school. But for government, it was felt that Malay was a language that was more fit, if you like. It has a long tradition of written literature, and it is also already there that's being used as a language of education. And the Dutch was also also interested in standardizing. So as they were adopting the language, they were also seeking to standardize the language so that it was more appropriate, so that it was more fit to be used as the language of government and trade. Prior to the Dutch arriving, as Novi mentioned, it was a language of trade. So I think it's really important to remember that the area that we call Indonesia now, and it certainly wasn't called Indonesian a thousand years ago, but was an area where there is trade coming from China, from India, people moving through there from all parts of the world. And we can see the sort of the original homeland of Malay as we know it now is sort of in the area of Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula. And because that was a very important trade route, that is why that language began to be spread and used in other parts of the archipelago. And so it was picked up both, as Novi mentioned, as sort of a language of day-to-day interaction at the trade level, but then it also spread at this higher level that Novi mentioned being used by various royal courts throughout the archipelago. So, for example, once Islam came into the area, various sultanates across the archipelago adopted Malay as the language of the courts, and that's sort of where the standard language that Novi mentioned originated from. With 6,000 islands inhabited now out of 17,000 islands in the Indonesian archipelago. Was there high penetration in some areas versus low penetration of Malay as the lingua franca in others? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, there's many parts of Sumatra, the Malay Peninsula, parts of Kalimantan or Borneo, where Malay has been spoken as the local regional language of the people there for generations. Then with the movement of trade and both 
indigenous people moving about the archipelago and then also these people coming from outside for trade purposes, also for spreading religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, other religions before Islam. The language spread with that. And so then it would be picked up in various places, maybe as an example, in the islands of Maluku, in the area that is now called Ambon, that became an important center of the spice trade. And so people there began using Malay more and more. And it even became established then a few hundred years ago as sort of the local language of that particular area where the trading post was set up. Is it important that religious missionaries chose High Malay as the language that they deployed? That is important, I think. So again, we mentioned that there's many religions have come through Indonesia. Indonesia, of course, has many traditional belief practices, but over a thousand years, 1800 years, we've had Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity coming in. So the answer to your question in particular when Europeans came in and were bringing Christianity, both in the form of Catholicism and Protestantism, they did look at what sort of language they wanted to use to proselytize and ask these questions about should it be in a local language. They discovered Malay, of course, was the language that was spoken somewhat widely throughout the area. So then the question was, should it be in the so-called low Malay or that style of Malay that's spoken on a day-to-day basis or in high Malay, the Malay of the Malay literature nobody mentioned or the Malay used in the royal courts? And because of the status in their minds of the Bible and religion, they chose high Malay, despite the fact that actually the vast majority of people who might speak Malay wouldn't understand it at that point. So staying in that earlier period, Novi, were the inhabitants always using a number of different languages, the Malay language, perhaps their home language. And were those languages hybridizing to some degree, even in that earlier period before it became the lingua franca of an independent Indonesia? Indonesia has always been a very highly multilingual place. It wasn't Indonesia, of course, prior to independence. But I think if we think about language as something that is alive, that is always evolving, I think Michael and I, you know, have been talking about this a lot, then, you know, it would be more productive for us to think about these regional languages or the existing languages at the time, as well as Malay, as well as Dutch that was introduced later on, as, you know, living languages, they were evolving as we were, you know, treating them as kind of different discrete languages. And also, Indonesia, of course, is so varied across the whole archipelago that the way that Malay would interact with regional languages would vary greatly. So, for example, you can see a lot of influence between both Malay and Javanese because those cultures have been interacting for hundreds and hundreds of years, whereas other parts of Indonesia have remained relatively isolated until relatively recent times. And so the kinds of influences, the fluidity, hybridity that we're talking about might have only started to happen in the 20th century. Could I clarify one linguistic point? Sure. We know that from Papua New Guinea that the languages there, even on an island like Manus, are really different from each other. They're um, indecipherable to speakers of other languages within that country. Is it the same within the Indonesian archipelago that a distant island will have a language that's almost unknowable to someone living in another part of Indonesia. Absolutely. The languages of Indonesia are completely different languages. They are, of course, many of them related to each other. So we talk about the Austronesian language family, and the majority of languages spoken in Indonesia, including Malay and Indonesian, are members of the Austronesian language family. And this is similar, if you have heard the term Indo-European language family, the, many of the languages of Europe, including languages moving into um, India and, and parts of Central Asia, are related to each other historically. And it's the same sort of situation with languages across Indonesia, other parts of island Southeast Asia, and moving into the Pacific as well, as far as, as New Zealand, Hawaii. 
So they're related to each other, but as different from each other as English is from Spanish, German, Hindi, and things like that. Take us now to that period when, in fact, the choice of Malay was designated as the lingua franca for Indonesia. It wasn't just a simple bureaucratic choice. It was a highly politicized choice. That's right. That decision to designate Malay as Indonesian and to be the language of the nationalist movement occurred in 1928. What we now call Indonesia was still the Dutch East Indies. It was a very important part of that move by an intellectual and highly politicized elite within Indonesia to push an agenda forward to raise the status of Indonesians within this colony with the ideal possibly of eventually having an independent nation. I think at that point, how and when that would happen wasn't really clear to people, but they knew they had to really take a stand and to say that they were a united people wanting to improve the lot of all Indonesians in the context of the Dutch colonial period. What is interesting, though, Michael, is is that at the time, there had already been efforts, actually, by the Dutch to cultivate the Malay language. Right? They wanted to standardize it, to be used, to make it more fit as a language of government. If you like, it was a two-way thing. It was coming from the nationalist movement, but also something that was already worked on by the colonial government as well. That's right. The colonial government themselves knew that they had to somehow unite all these incredibly diverse cultures across the archipelago. And so they chose Malay as the language of administration to do that. So as Novi was saying, that just fed right into the nationalist ideal of trying to bring everyone together, in fact, to oppose the Dutch. Novi, what's the best description? Was this lingua franca, Malay, Bahasa, Indonesia, promoted generously or was it to some extent imposed upon the population? To be thinking about, if you like, the newly named language, because it was not a new language, imposed to the population is partially correct, I think. And it is correct if we think about it in terms of government rigorously campaigning for the population to actually embrace what was being promoted was the standard variety of the language. So, in fact, the campaigns were asking the population to embrace or to understand or to use the standard variety of the language. What was not said was that they should embrace this variety and use it in the proper context, namely in informal contexts. And so often I think it was, I don't know if you agree, Michael, it was mostly misunderstood as being a language that's out there to be embraced. And, you know, once you have a name, Bahasa Indonesia, Indonesian, it was treated almost like a discrete entity to be imposed to the entire population. It is true that many people, you know, at the time didn't have Indonesian as their first language. But I think there should have been a note there in the campaign that said, okay, this is the standard variety. We want you to acquire so that you can participate in education, so that you can participate in government. So was it a language that was imposed? Yes, I think in that sense, in that sense it was. At the same time that the initial imposition, if we call it that, was very much at this level of education, use in the government. And I'd say for many decades, the general population really wasn't picking up Indonesian as the language they would be using with each other on a daily basis. It was probably during the Suharto government, there's a really big push for mass education across the country, together with 
great improvement in media and communications. And those two things together really popularized the use of Indonesian. So there was this sort of official push to use it, but then in very practical terms, suddenly everybody was going to school, everybody was learning it there. They were listening to it on the radio, seeing it on television, and that's maybe the time when it really got picked up by the population as a whole. Sense of identity is one of the guests at this banquet table, certainly. And, and the old saying, acquire another language, acquire another soul, it's very, very important to culture. Identity is deeply tied to language. So was there resistance to adopting this national language? I would say, in general, there was not resistance. Would you agree, Novi? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think for most people, it's a practical thing. So we've been describing it as a lingua franca. That means a language that you might use with people with whom you don't share another language. In that sense, it's very practical. And so there would not have been resistance to that. And then as people began to aspire for better education, Indonesian was a very clear vehicle for that, for improved economic status. So, in fact, there hasn't been resistance. It's been growing, accepted, and I don't think people have ever thought in terms very much of, oh, if I speak Indonesian, I'll no longer speak Javanese or I won't speak Batak or Balinese or whatever it is. As we've mentioned before, it's a very multilingual archipelago. Most people these days grow up speaking both regional, local language and Indonesian almost simultaneously. And having both those cultures, both those identities working together for individuals, I think, is a really important part of being Indonesian. It is certainly true that during the Suharto era, when Indonesian was rigorously promoted, there was a lot less attention to the development or promotion of regional languages. And I think in that sense, it has been a little bit unbalanced. So people felt that certainly critics have uh, expressed that the promotion of Indonesian was at the detriment of other languages and also of other varieties of Indonesian. So informal Indonesian at the time was treated as though it was a different language that people shouldn't speak. But that situation has greatly changed now. Is it fair to say, Novi, that Indonesian is a second language for most Indonesians? It was. It was. I think now, according to the latest information, about 95% of the population use Indonesian to speak in, in informal situations, but also, of course, at school. So that situation, yes, definitely has changed. Yeah, and maybe a couple of ways it's changed is, first of all, in, in large urban areas, certainly in Jakarta and other large urban areas in Indonesia, people have come from so many parts of the country that everybody is using some variety of Indonesian both in the formal context, but also in informal Indonesian. And people growing up in those contexts are growing up basically as first language speakers of Indonesian. But then in other parts of the country, as Novi was saying, it's not so much that it's a second language, it's that people are le learning Indonesian and a regional language or even regional languages simultaneously. So you don't really say one's a first language and one's the second, but people are growing up multilingual. Michael, we've talked about the practicality, the utilitarian aspect particularly that early adoption stage of Indonesian. But just from what you just said, obviously things have moved on markedly since then. We've got culture, we've got literature, we've got television, we've got fiction, etc. So returning to the idea of identity, to what extent now in the 21st century is Indonesian a real marker of identity within the country? 
Indonesian is an important marker of identity, but it's one of many markers of identities. So Indonesians, like anybody in the world, we all have multiple identities. And for example, I've done some research in West Java where the dominant regional language is Sundanese. And in the large city there, Bandung, young people who are from Sundanese families often speak Indonesian, but they also speak Sundanese. And what they really often do is mix them up. And the choice between am I speaking predominantly in Indonesian or I'm speaking in Indonesian, but maybe I'll use pronouns to talk about, to refer to myself and the person I'm talking to. Maybe I'll use the Sundanese pronouns, which will add a little bit of Sundanese identity in that broader Indonesian identity. That happens all the time. Just to follow on from what you said, Michael, I think it's the term or the notion of identity itself that's been now conceptualized differently. So previously, when we thought about Indonesian as being a marker of identity, it was a marker of national identity, and that was imposed by the new order government. So as part of national identity, one speaks the national language, one embraces the wearing of national costume, and so on, all the superficiality that comes with it. But I think now people ask about Indonesian identity in a different way. And so people talk about identities rather than just one singular national identity. You said earlier that languages are a living, organic thing. And you can see something analogous to what you're describing happening in India as well with the mixing and matching of languages, a bit of Hindi, a bit of English, and perhaps in other languages. So is something similar to that from your description happening in Indonesia, the mix and matching? Absolutely. For me, that's one of the hallmarks of informal Indonesian. I remember when I was working on a variety of Javanese, in fact, in a town called Cirebon many years ago, people would talk about how it was nice to speak Javanese, but it was impossible to speak Javanese without also including some Indonesian or the other way around. And that, in fact, it created a feeling of being more, well, they use the term sadap. So it's just a nicer flavor, a nicer feeling if you're mixing things together, sort of like mixing together spices to create a nice curry. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with Indonesian studies experts, Associate Professor Novi Jenar of the University of Sydney and Dr. Michael Ewing of Asia Institute. We're talking about the Indonesian language and its role in the massively multilingual social landscape of Indonesia. Take us into an everyday situation, Michael. We're, we're in Jakarta, say, and we're in a busy market situation and I walk into the market. What language do I choose? If you were in Jakarta walking into the market, you would probably want to speak Jakartan Indonesian. So Jakarta has been the capital of Indonesia since independence. Prior to that, it was called Batavia, and it was the capital of the Dutch East Indies. And Malay has been the language of that metropolitan area since the early Dutch colonial period. And a very distinctive variety of Malay developed there, which now into the 21st century has evolved into what is often referred to as Jakartan Indonesian. It's a very informal style of language that really does mark an identity of living in the capital city, which brings with it all kinds of connotations of being modern and prosperous and progressive and all of that sort of thing. It's a style of speaking that has different pronouns, different kinds of, of grammar, but it's still understandable as a type of Indonesian. So people move to Jakarta from all over Indonesia and internationally, and anybody who lives in Jakarta for any length of time starts speaking Indonesian in that style on an in, informal basis. 
And because of the importance of Jakarta and the ubiquitous nature of media these days, that style of Indonesian is spreading throughout the archipelago and informing the way that people speak informal Indonesian across the whole country. I think because wealth, modernity, it's very attractive to a lot of people. And the style of speaking that is associated with Jakarta, then it's also adopted by people in other areas of Indonesia. At the same time, if I could jump in, it's not just adopted wholesale. It's bits and pieces. It's it's bits of style that inform a very local style. So I was was mentioning Bandung again. So in Bandung, people speak Indonesian, they speak it informally, it has lots of qualities of Sundanese in it, but it also has various aspects of Jakarta. So it's, yes. this, again, this hybrid nature. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because we tend to think of the Jakartan style as being a style that just spreads all over Indonesia and people just adopt it like that. But in fact, what has emerged in different parts of Indonesia is kind of localized national how do you say it? Cosmopolitan style? Sort of almost? a cosmopolitan styles. Informal way of speaking, mm -hmm. hip way of speaking. And the role of television, I'm just imagining there's a national news service goes over the whole archipelago and that would be conducted in a certain kind of journalese version of Indonesian, I'm guessing. But you get individuals perhaps from more outlying islands or have jobs in the media. Is that part of the mixing and matching that's going on, that influence you're describing? So, yes and no. There are a number of television stations and each station would have a certain amount of content from the local area. So, for example, if you go to Bali, there is the Balinese television. Um, In their local language? In their local language, yeah, in Balinese. So, while people are exposed to different television stations and the language and the styles of speaking, I would say it in the plural. Okay, yes, they speak Indonesian, but actually what we think about as television programs are quite varied. So while the news bulletin will be read in Indonesian, in between reading news bulletin, people do speak in informal Indonesian and the you know different programs and, of course, English is there too in the mix. That use of local languages as well as Indonesian in television is a really good example of one of the big changes that has happened in Indonesia in the 21st century. In the 20th century, Indonesian television was basically always in Indonesian and almost always standard Indonesian. And now people are embracing their local identity and this ability to move very fluidly between different languages, between different styles, using formal Indonesian, informal Indonesian, influenced by local languages all the time. And that's really been taken up by the media in a way that it never was earlier. I think that's a really good point. So in contemporary Indonesia, there is this really strong sense of awareness of linguistic diversity, of cultural diversity. And so if we go back to the point about national identity, what people want to highlight now is not national identity in that rigid sense of, you know, one nation, one language, but rather an Indonesia that is linguistically diverse, that is ethnically and religiously diverse. And so highlighting these different languages is part of that you know, sense of confidence about being Indonesian. Something that Novi and I were talking about earlier was how this growing confidence in being Indonesian and being Indonesian and having these other various identities has meant that there's no longer this sort of negative attitude towards the use of foreign languages like English. So in the past, 
there might have been a sense that, oh, you shouldn't mix English into Indonesian or all advertisements should always be in Indonesian because there's this sort of fear of influence. But I think that people don't have that fear at all anymore. People in Indonesia are really embracing their identity on the world stage, embracing other languages, foreign languages, Indonesian, Arabic and others, without a sense of their own identity being threatened. Novi, is there a generational dimension to all this? I'm thinking, I'm imagining grandmother in a particular location of strong cultural background. She's a superb speaker of the local language. But the kids, of course, from the description you've both given us, are are often another kick, really, linguistically. Are there almost familial social problems emerging generationally with the use of the lingua franca? I think different parts of Indonesia would probably show different patterns of this. I can tell you that when I was doing my fieldwork in Surabaya, the second largest city in Indonesia, I was recording high school kids, and these are junior high school. They're in their um, 13, 14 years old. I didn't ask what language they should be speaking. I only said, okay, I would like to record your interaction. And what I got was Javanese. And another group was like that in a private school, a bunch of male students. What we got was a whole lot of Javanese and some Indonesian. And so if we say that there is a generational issue, yes, there is, but it depends on where we look. It might be the older generation that retains the language and the younger generation is moving towards Malay. And some parts of Indonesia, such as Java, Javanese language is not threatened. And that's probably shown, among other things, by this younger generation still speaking it quite fluently. At the same time, some of our colleagues have done research in other parts of Java, which has shown that, in particularly in urban areas, there are younger people who aren't speaking Javanese so much anymore, and particularly young women. There's evidence that often mothers are preferring to speak Indonesian to their daughters in a Javanese context, very likely as a way of equipping them for education to advance economically. So that's interesting, Michael. So this, again, illustrates the different situation in, in different parts of Indonesia. Even within Java alone, you find you know different situations, different scenarios here. Were you referring to Jogja, Central Java? That's right, yeah. 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 So, and, and also with that, I guess the, the interesting counter story to that is that often it's the young men who are maintaining Javanese. And one hypothesis about that is because of the speech levels that Novi was talking about before, men could be shown respect through those systems. And so they might often find that by retaining the use of the local language, it gives them a certain traditional prestige, whereas the women in this context are seeing embracing Indonesian as a way of moving into a more modern, contemporary kind of cultural context. From your combined description, hybridization, mixing and matching the the regional languages and incoming languages internationally, it sounds like a language that's going through enormous change. Does it retain the force of a lingua franca? I suppose the answer is yes and no. In some ways, in its official capacity as the language that unites Indonesia and is meant to be used as the language that you speak so you can talk to people who come from different parts of Indonesia, yes. But I think the reality that we've been talking about is that it has become so ingrained as a part of Indonesian national identity of what people just use on a day-to-day basis that it's sort of moved into a different position where people simply take it for granted as the language of the country, of the nation. If you have something to add to that, Novi? (laughs) Yes, I think this is an important point that you've raised, Michael, that, you know, Indonesian now is 
spoken by the majority of people. It's no longer that language that people need to consciously think about or when they make a decision about uh, which language to use for this particular purpose. Nova, you haven't discussed the role of government very much today. What is the important role that they play, especially recently in their attitude to language? So for three decades, Indonesian was presented to the public as the language of choice and the language that people should know and should be familiar with, should be able to write and speak well. But now that the majority of the population is already speaking the language, there is quite a significant policy shift. And that shift is shown in the way that the Language Council has allowed elements or so words from regional languages to be included in the national dictionary, in the standard Indonesian dictionary. That's one. And the other is the formal acknowledgement and also encouragement by the Language Council for people to maintain regional languages by encouraging children to speak to their parents. In fact, there is a call for people to cultivate their mother tongues. So I think that's a very important change in the attitude of government. And that must have an impact on things perhaps like the arts, where there must be a bit of a tug if you want to be a successful artist, as a performing artist particularly, a comedian perhaps, to speak the national language. But there's a bit of a tension there between that and performing in local situations. Tension only in the sense that the performances in local languages, in ethnic languages, perhaps are happening at the local level, but not to the same extent as performances being conducted in Indonesian. But I think we must remember here that a lot of the performances, a lot of the you know literature are aimed at local audiences. And so if we think about Indonesian being used in literature, the consumption is happening at the local level. However, however, I was talking to Michael this morning, there's something, this really interesting thing happening as uh, Indonesian young writers, uh, many of whom were educated overseas, are comfortable writing in both Indonesian and English. And in fact, some of them are writing in English and want to be acknowledged as Indonesian writers, but through English works. And there is a lot of tension currently among those who would promote uh, Indonesian literature written in Indonesian and Indonesian literature written in English. I think both of them are equally valid. But I think this illustrates for us a very interesting situation in which, once again, relating this to national identity, that national identity now is not so strictly defined in terms of Indonesian language. Yeah, I think we can see that it's not strictly defined in Indonesian language in the sense that people are very happy to embrace both local languages and international languages. And we talked about those different kinds of identities, and we can see it being played out right here in Melbourne because the Indonesian Film Festival is on. And if you think about Indonesian films, in the past, they were always in Indonesian. In the past, often standard Indonesian, colloquial Indonesian has worked its way into Indonesian films. If Indonesian films were set in a particular cultural context, there might be a few words to kind of mark it that way. But these days... At the Indonesian Film Festival, there's a film that's entirely in Javanese. So people are making entire films in local languages. And interestingly, there's one film that's entirely in English. So we can see Indonesian filmmakers really wanting to present their work to an international audience. Finally, Michael and Novi, what you've described, both of you, is quite a complex process. It's been shifting and changing over that long period. 
But you're also describing something that's alive, as Novi said earlier. How do you see the future then, both of you? Social media, of course, is playing a big role. Jakarta itself is very much sold on social media, has a huge Facebook following there. How do you see the future in terms of the development and the evolution of the Indonesian language? I think in the short term, we'll see this the continued sort of fluidity and people moving between languages and creating new identities out of their sense of locality, wherever they are, international identities, pan-Indonesian identities. That's going to continue. And we can see that on social media. And it's not just in Jakarta. It's across the archipelago. Everybody has has a mobile phone and will be, be texting and, and accessing Facebook and Twitter and whatever. And there we can see all of these same issues playing out. You see posts in Indonesian. You see posts in very informal language. You see people posting in local languages. So it's just, I'd say, continuing pretty much in the same direction at this point. I don't know, Novi, what do you think? Um I think it's not just social media, but the internet has been hugely influential and hugely significant in both giving and contributing to the emergence of hybridity, Mm -hmm. but also to the emergence of attempts to retain the language as stereotypically conceptualized as discrete entities. So, for example, you see a lot of uh, young people now asking on social media, on the internet more generally, about how to speak Javanese, about how to speak a particular language. They have that cultural heritage. They can't speak it. They want to be able to speak it. How do they do it? And of course, ultimately, you know, if you get answers on the internet, that's not going to make you into a fluent speaker. But I think, you know, the questions themselves are important in showing us that the younger generation are interested in reviving the languages. And that's a good thing. An utterly fascinating topic. Thank you so much to you, Michael and Nofi, for being with us today on Ear to Asia. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Our guest today, Associate Professor Novi Jenner of the University of Sydney and Dr. Michael Ewing of Asia Institute. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And, of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 11th of April 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.